Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer, podcast host and producer. And I'm very pleased to be bringing you a discussion on hematopoietic stem cell transplant, or HSCT, in diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis and the potential role of FCR001, an investigational allogeneic cell therapy. Before we get started, a few housekeeping notes. This medical education activity is funded by Tolaris Therapeutics Incorporated. It is also worth noting that the safety and efficacy of the investigational cell therapy FCR001 have not yet been established. Now, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Dinesh Khanna, Professor of Medicine and Director of the University of Michigan's Scleroderma Program. Now, Dr. Khanna directs a multidisciplinary team of caregivers, scientists and clinical researchers dedicated to advancing knowledge about scleroderma and related conditions. His research interests include developing new patient-reported outcome measures in patients with scleroderma and clinical trial design in evaluating new treatments. In addition, he is leading international efforts on developing guidelines for the management of scleroderma. Dr. Karna, how are you today? Hello, and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I'm doing well. Hope you are doing well too. I'm doing well. Thank you. Also joining us to give us an insight into the life of somebody living with systemic sclerosis is Jean Hera, who is a patient of Dr. Karna's. How are you doing, Jean? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Throughout today's podcast, we will be looking at scleroderma as a whole, focusing on diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, or DCSSC, including its symptoms and diagnosis, what the current treatments for DCSSC are, the novel area of hematopoietic stem cell transplants and potential role of FCR001, an investigational allogeneic cell therapy. And finally, we'll be discussing the exciting Freedom 3 trial, which is looking into the potential role FCR001 may have in treating DCSSC. Firstly, I think it would be a good idea to start with the basics and take a look at scleroderma as a whole. Dr. Karna, would you mind explaining what is scleroderma and what the symptoms of this condition are? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's a very pertinent question. So scleroderma is a rare autoimmune disease and a rheumatic disease that affects approximately 200,000 people in U.S. So think about the population of United States. It's approximately 360 million people. So it is designated as an orphan disease. And scleroderma really translates into hard skin in the Greek language. And that's where the word scleroderma comes into play. It is further classified into localized scleroderma that usually affects young patients and systemic sclerosis or systemic scleroderma that you were mentioning which can affect 75 to 80,000 people in U.S. Now, systemic sclerosis is further divided into limited cutaneous and diffuse cutaneous SSC or DCSSC, which will be our focus today. And the distribution between limited and the distinction between limited and diffuse cutaneous is really based on the extent of skin involvement it is very clear that diffuse means that you have much more skin involvement, much more skin thickening compared to limited cutaneous subset. And there are approximately 30,000 people in US who suffer from diffuse cutaneous subset. 
How do the symptoms of DCSSC differ from other subtypes of scleroderma? Yeah, the diffuse cutaneous subset, you know, it's a more dynamic disease process and there's quite a bit of skin disease and worsening during early course associated with internal organ involvement. If you think about scleroderma or thickened skin, it's a disease of hardening of collagen. And the collagen is there not just under your skin, it is in your heart, it's in your lungs, it's in your gut, it's in your other parts, joints, and other aspects of the body. So it is hardening of that collagen and in early diffuse cutaneous subset, apart from progressive worsening of the skin, unfortunately, many of the people develop potential life-threatening internal organ involvement, such as lung fibrosis, kidney fibrosis, and heart fibrosis. In addition, you know, Jean, Jean will, will tell her history to you, but many, if not all patients have quite a bit of disability due to hand contractures, large joint contractures that impact their day-to-day -day activities and, and impact, you know, having to work and to make a living. And Jean, which subset of the scleroderma are you currently living with? Um, actually, I had the transplant in 2008, and so my symptoms are almost non-existent, but that's probably for later on in the podcast. I was diagnosed in 2007 after having the swollen, painful um, hands and the frequent Raynaud's phenomenon flare-ups. Um, I had two uh, carpal tunnel surgeries and... After all of that, um, I still didn't have any relief. So I was referred then to rheumatology um, at that point. And um, then was found, then was told that I, it looked like I had uh, scleroderma. Um, the first rheumatologist that I saw, he um, didn't know exactly what kind it was, but he recommended that I uh, search out care at the University of Michigan. And for that, I'm so grateful. First of all, it's absolutely fantastic to hear that your you know, life's been changed by the transplant. That's, that's incredible. But I was just wondering whether we could quickly reflect on the impact that this condition had on your life, pre-diagnosis and early diagnosis. Yeah. How, how, how did it negatively impact your life? Uh, well, there was shortness of breath, constant fatigue. Um, at that time, I was a newlywed uh, and we had four teenagers living in our home. We were a blended family. Um, I had lost a, a husband to cancer a number of years earlier, and so when I met my current husband, uh, we blended and life became very busy with getting all of the teenagers to their sports events, their school events, and um, driver's training. What I noticed as my hands were became more painful and hardened, the skin on my arms and neck and trunk became more hardened. And with that, I had a harder time with breathing. I had a harder time keeping up with all the activities. And um, it, it didn't look like I was going to make it uh, through their teenage years. I can't even imagine how that must have felt. I mean, the, the feelings of anxiety and, and, and dread looking towards the future and you describing your symptoms there, it sounds like your disease progressed very rapidly. Dr. Karna, how quickly in patients do we see this disease progress and it does it vary from patient to patient? Yeah, I think Jean's history is unfortunately typical disease progression. 
they go from a doctor to doctor. The initial symptoms are usually fatigue, uh, tiredness, Raynaud's phenomenon, which is the changing colors in your fingers or toes, which affects about 5 to 10% of the population. So most of the primary care doctors or internists do not pay too much attention to it. And slowly pe people start to develop a positive anti-nuclear antibody, uh, swelling of the hands, they get carpal tunnel syndrome, surgeries like, like Jean was talking about, they go to a dermatologist, a hand surgeon, and so forth. So the initial part is it takes approximately a year, one year before a patient from the onset of diffuse scleroderma till they come to University of Michigan. So it's an average of a year. And then the anxiety of not knowing the diagnosis turns into shock that can then lead the patient to go into depression, isolation, fear, and continuing helplessness. Uh, Gene, uh, just to uh, elaborate on that point, I know you said um, when you were initially telling us about your symptoms that you found it very hard to come to terms. Can you remember the exact moments when you were diagnosed with this condition and what you were kind of going through? Um, gosh, it was such a process. Um, Mostly, like Dr. Connor mentioned, uh, with the anxiety, and the, in 2007, there wasn't as much information on the internet, but there was enough to scare the daylights out of you. <laughs> and um, so, uh, there, I couldn't find many treatment options on the internet. Um, and what I did research um, looked devastating. Uh, as far as a prognosis goes. So I was pretty discouraged during that time until I was offered uh, the possibility of enrolling in the Scott trial. And how long was it from your initial symptoms to diagnosis? Um, approximately, like Dr. Kana said, um, about a year before I got the accurate diagnosis. I had tried treating all the other symptoms, but the diagnosis came about a year. And then within seven months, my pulmonary function test um, started decreasing and my skin scores continued to increase. And um, it was at that time when I realized that there was internal involvement that I was appreciative for the opportunity for the transplant. Can't even imagine. It must have been an incredibly scary time for, for you and, and your family. Dr. Karna, I just wanted to ask you, how, how is this condition diagnosed? And what are, what are the challenges surrounding that diagnosis process? Yeah, the diagnosis is quite simple, but... You know, a part of the issues are initially the symptoms, like I stated before, are nonspecific. You know, the fatigue, weight loss, tiredness, depression. I mean, these are all common nonspecific symptoms. And then patients start to have swelling of the hands, puffiness of the hands, you know, getting more heartburn. They go to their primary care doctor for Raynaud's phenomenon and those symptoms, they are generally given a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or paracetamol or Tylenol for the treatment of these things. Diffuse scleroderma tends to be diagnosed earlier than limited form of it because of the progressive skin thickening. People are starting to develop suddenly hand contractures, carpal tunnel syndrome. But because it is an orphan disease and because the initial symptoms are so nonspecific, it usually takes four to six months for a primary care doctor to say, okay, there's something more than 
just something emotional going on here. Let me refer the patient to a dermatologist or a rheumatologist or to a hand surgeon. And that's how the process starts. I understand. So once the patient gets to the point where they're being diagnosed, what are the treatments that are commonly prescribed to treat DCSSC? And, and how effective are they generally? Like Jean said, you know, we have really progressed in the management of systemic sclerosis, the diffuse subset, than when Gene was diagnosed in 2007. But I must admit that there's a very large unmet need for management of the diffuse subset. There is no cure. I think the only potential cure is stem cell transplantation, and we'll come to that. And it's unfortunately only available to a very few people. As an example, there's no disease modifying treatment for the disease. And a disease modifying treatment would be like in rheumatoid arthritis. If somebody had rheumatoid arthritis in 2022, they could go to a rheumatologist and they can get therapies. There are 10 to 15 approved therapies now. They can go on biologics or small molecules. That will prevent progression of the disease. Patients are no longer disabled. They are no longer using aids and devices. They work full time and they are not having any joint damage and, and, and the destruction of the joints. The same for lupus now, the same for psoriatic arthritis now. Unfortunately, what we do here is symptomatic relief. If they have joint pain and inflammation, we might give them steroids or prednisone or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. If they have Raynaud's phenomenon, we might give them vasodilatory therapies. Everything is not lost. I don't want you to feel that there's nothing there. Are. There are medications that are approved for lung fibrosis and pulmonary arterial hypertension. However, it's unfortunate that these medications have never shown to prevent the internal organ involvement. So and as an example, that if, if, if Gene came today and didn't have any lung fibrosis or pulmonary arterial hypertension, one of my goals should be, can I prevent, can I have a drug that is disease modifying so gene does not develop lung fibrosis or pH, and I don't have a drug like this. So we wait for these complications to occur because they don't occur in every patient. And unfortunately, you know, due to that, we lose very important time when patients may develop progressive internal organ involvement. I understand. So, and it sounds from your description as though you have independent therapies which can treat the symptoms as they occur, but there's no blanket treatment or cure for the disease as a whole. Gene, what was your experience before you um, before you underwent the transplant with with the treatments available? Some of which Dr. Kana mentioned. Yes, just as Dr. Kana did mention, um, we just kind of at the time treated the symptoms. Um, I took the uh, medication to try to help the reflux and the GI symptoms that were occurring. Um, I tried some of the vasodilators but was allergic, and so I just kind of dealt with the Raynaud's. At that point, or at that time, in 2007, from my patient perspective, the doctor that I was working with at the time had kind of a let's wait and see what happens to you um, kind of plan. Uh, so there wasn't any, and maybe there weren't any medications to offer at the time as for preventative or other than the transplant, but it was just symptomatic treatment. And then as you progress, then we'll address those symptoms. What were some of the main kind of side effects that you were experiencing, if any, at the time? Uh, mostly the problem with the circulation of the hands and the feet, 
uh, skin hardening and the digestive issues, reflux, heartburn, um, not always digesting very well and having a slower digestion. So I had to um, switch my diet around and eliminate some foods that wouldn't digest properly. Those are the things I'm thinking of. Uh, it all sounds um, in, in, incredibly unpleasant and um, not, not something you'd wish upon anyone. Dr. Karnat and Jean, with all this in mind, do you feel like there is a current unmet medical need for, for new treatments in this disease area? Because it, it certainly seems as if there is. I think if you ask 100 rheumatologists around the globe, 99 out of 100 will endorse that systemic sclerosis has the highest unmet need of any rheumatic disease. And, and, and that's a very strong statement because there are over hundreds, there are over hundred rheumatic diseases that rheumatologists treat. So that's how big the unmet need is out there. And I think as Jean pointed out, I also want to highlight that we wait for the symptoms to occur. And that's not uh, uncommon that a rheumatologist would say, Let's wait what happens internally. And you can imagine for a young person to say, okay, I have to wait for this lung fibrosis to get worse before any treatment would be started. I need to have this heart failure get to a point before the treatment can, can be started. Doesn't make sense. You know, when you think about it, that's not how we should be treating it. And even when we start the treatment, the therapies do not reverse the course of the disease. So if Jean had lung fibrosis and I gave her an immunosuppressive therapy that's approved by the FDA, the best I can offer her is to maintain that degree of lung function. If she's fortunate, I cannot reverse the lung function back to where she started. Looking ahead to the future, what potential do you believe allergenic stem cell transplants have in treating DCSSC. Yeah, so let's spend some time on stem cell transplantation. You know, I'm a rheumatologist and, you know, uh, most of the primary care doctor and rheumatologists do not know much about the stem cell transplant and, you know, how it works. So stem cell transplantation, the, the history is very interesting and exciting. Stem cell transplantation was adopted as a treatment for autoimmune diseases based on remarkable improvement in different autoimmune diseases with concomitant cancers. So what happened is that these people had stem cell transplantation, allogeneic stem cell transplantation. And what they found out during this time is that, you know, people's autoimmune disease remarkably got better and they went into remission. So, you know, what are stem cells? You know, stem cells are the cells which are the seed cells, like we call them, that can become an individual blood or immune system. And they're defined by their ability to self-renew as well as differentiate into mature blood and immune cells. So gene, what gene had was what we call autologous stem cell transplantation. What it means is that we used her own stem cells after after giving her radiation and, and giving her chemotherapy to ablate the autoreactive immune system or, or, or what you would call as pathogenic antigens that were supposedly causing scleroderma in her. Whereas in allogeneic stem cell transplantation, you use someone's else stem cell transplantation. Uh, 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 you use somebody else stem cells in there. Now, stem cells can be obtained from bone marrow, you know, rarely from umbilical cord blood. And, and you hear a lot of people storing that. 
or as we talked about the FCR001 cell therapy, it can be mobilized to leave the bone marrow and enter the bloodstream where they can be collected. Autologous stem cell transplantation, as in systemic sclerosis that Gene had, has had excellent success. I always tell people if there is a cure for early diffuse subset, it is stem cell transplantation. But there are a few drawbacks. Number one, the SCOT protocol that Gene talked about gives a high dose of radiation, total body radiation. And the radiation is given to kill the actively dividing and sleeping autoreactive cells. You know, you, you don't want to, you, you do not want the cells that cause scleroderma to be residing within your body. Uh, you want to kill every last cell. Now we know that is not possible, but that is the goal out here. In patients who had a lower dose stem cell transplantation, there's a risk of approximately 25 to 35% of the patient relapsing in the next three to five years. In other words, they get a stem cell transplantation, they're doing well, and about one in three people have a flare of the disease, the scleroderma comes back in the next three to five years, likely because we are not able to remove all the antigens that are a trigger for scleroderma. So now let's talk about the allogeneic, the advantage of using a normal donor to obtain stem cells for an allogeneic transplant is that donor stem cells are healthy. You know, so if you and I don't have an autoimmune disease, we do not have genetic defect, we are free from those immune genetic and infectious diseases that a patient might have. And the underlying disease cells will not be present in an allogeneic transplant donor stem cells. So in theory, that your or my stem cells will create a new healthy blood and immune system in a recipient free of their underlying disease process. So what is really exciting about the FCR001 is it's a, like we heard, it's an allogeneic stem cell product that we are using in the Freedom 3 scleroderma transplant trial. So the cells are mobilized from no, normal donors who do not have the, the disease. And, you know, it is shipped to Talaris clinical manufacturing centers. Now, FCR001 has data in people who had undergone a live donor kidney transplant with simultaneous stem cell transplantation. So when a patient gets a live kidney for any reason, diabetes and autoimmune kidney disease, whatever the reason might be, they are on lifelong immunosuppressive therapy because that kidney that that person is getting is immunologically different than, than their own immune system. And they are on lifelong immunosuppressive therapy with significant side effects from infection, osteoporosis, weight gain, cataracts, and so forth. Now, what they found out that patients who had autoimmune diseases causing the kidney disease, they have remained inactive with no evidence of recurrence following their transplant with FCR001. And, and you know, many of these people are off therapies now for seven to 10 years from their transplant. So that is really exciting real-life data in, in, in patients who, who have other autoimmune diseases and required kidney transplant. Wow, this is, all sounds absolutely incredible. My, my first question that springs to the mind is how difficult is it to find suitable donors for an allogeneic stem cell transplant? So allogeneic stem cell transplantation, you know, initially it required a complete HLA genetic match between donor and recipient. Now, if you do allogeneic stem cell transplantation who are identical twins, you know, they should not because they share the same genetic and immune material. 
they by definition will not reject even, even without any immunosuppressive therapy. But there's a 25% chance that a full sibling will have a perfect match with, with another sibling. And the reason being that, you know, you inherit one chromosome from each of the 23 pairs from each of your parents. So there's a 25% or one in four chance that you will be a perfect match. So historically, that's how the stem cell transplantations were done, that you required a complete match donor recipient pair. But as you know, that the families are growing smaller now, and there are certain ethnicity and races such as African-Americans, Asians, and, and Hispanics that don't have a large donor pool, that many patients do not have a fully matched HLA family donor. So what the researchers have done over the past decade is that they have started to use HLA non-identical siblings or family donors that can be that can be considered for allogeneic stem cell transplantation where a fully matched donor is not available. So that's what the Freedom 3 protocol was recently amended to do. We are allowing people with half-matched donors, uh, which could be a sibling, a parent, or other relative, which provides an overwhelming majority of patients an opportunity to find an acceptable donor and undergo the stem cell transplantation. Before we come on to the Freedom 3 trial, Jean, I was wondering if you could please share the positive impact that receiving the hematopoietic stem cell transplant you received had on your life in terms of the alleviation of symptoms. I noticed the positive impacts immediately. I was still in the hospital. Um, I spent 19 days in the hospital and before I was even discharged, my skin started softening. Um, the doctors warned me that it might be the amount of steroids that I was receiving at the time and to kind of wait and see and not get too excited, but I was pretty excited. Um, from there, over the next 18 months to two years, the recovery period um, was wonderful. Um, it just continued. Uh, there was some bouncing around with uh, a, like a cytomegalovirus um, that flared up and um, some other little things that um, were difficult during the healing process. But as far as my scleroderma symptoms went, they improved and I could... Um, do things again that I wasn't able to do as far as uh, with the shortness of breath. I was back into the schedule of, of keeping up with my kids and a husband and family. And, um, and I basically got my life back is what happened. And um, to me, that's incredible. And to the people that I currently talk to, those that have had the transplant themselves, many, many uh, say the same thing. Oh, that's an incredible. And I hope that your story inspires hope in your fellow patients. I will just clarify that Jean received an auto 
stem cell transplant. Jim wasn't a participant in the Freedom 3 trial, the, the upcoming Freedom 3 trial. Jim uh, participated in the Scott trial, which was an auto stem cell transplant trial in 2008. But let's move on to the Freedom 3 trial. And Dr. Karna, in short, what do you hope to achieve from this trial? Yeah, so we want to, you know, this is a very initial trial and, you know, it's a, it's a safety trial. I think we are taking people like Gene who have early diffuse scleroderma with lung or kidney involvement. And the rationale for that is that people who have lung or kidney involvement early with diffuse scleroderma can have up to a 50% risk of dying in the next 10 years. So you want to offer you know, an aggressive treatment to patients and try to reverse the disease, like what happened with Gene, in patients who may have aggressive but early reversible disease. A lot of the patients who are referred to us have very long-standing chronic disease, and those people are likely not appropriate for stem cell transplantation, whether it's allogeneic or autologous. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to utilize the FCR001 allogeneic stem cell product to preserve the excellent clinical response like Gene had, but decrease the risk of relapse so Jean is one of the fortunate ones who has not relapsed and she continues to do well uh, you know, 14, 15 years down the transplant. But like I said, 25 to 35% of the people have a flare. And the goal here is to give the normal healthy donor cells into people with scleroderma and you know, try to see if we are able to achieve that. The other thing that is different than the SCOT protocol, which we call myeloablative, where we get a, a high dose of total body radiation and chemotherapy, is that we are giving a much less toxic regimen out here. And this reduced intensity or non-myeloablative conditioning regimen, you know, should enable the patient with scleroderma to better tolerate this transplant course, course as well. So, so, you know, that's what we are hoping. We are trying to test an hypothesis that, you know, giving healthy, normal donor cells with less toxicity and intensity will hopefully lead to long-term remission in people with early aggressive scleroderma. And it will be tolerated really well. But majority of the people that we plan to recruit are our sibling, family members, and, and you know, so forth for this trial. You have the potential there to, as a donor, save somebody's life. Um, do you have, Jean, uh, Dr. Carly, any, any other message to, to people considering taking part in this trial? I am so excited that this is happening. And like Dr. Connor said, you know, it was 14, 15 years ago for me. And we've come this far with not only um, making it uh, more of a treatment option uh, since the Scott trial for the Scott protocol, but now the non-myeloblative protocol is incredible. That that chance to um, not have to go through or experience, like many of us that have been gone through the chemo and the radiation, the recovery time might possibly even um, be sooner and less difficult with, with side effects um, that can pop up with um, the myeloblative um, transplant. I also am so excited that um, this could be an opportunity to offer patients hope. For me, when I was 
offered the opportunity to enroll in the trial, I was asked, what if I told you there might be a way to stop the progression of the disease and possibly even reverse some of your symptoms? That was the first time I had heard anything like that come out of a doctor's mouth. And of course, I you know jumped right on that and I said, sign me up. <laughs> I'll try it, I'll do what it takes. And he said, now this is not gonna be easy. I don't want you to think that this is gonna be a simple uh, plan and a simple process. He said, but what we're, what we're researching right now is the possibility that we can stop the progression of the disease and reverse some of the symptoms. And for that, I am so grateful. And the patients that I continue to talk to across the United States and globally, I was support group leader for five years over in West Michigan. And then I went uh, more into the online communities and started encouraging those that were seeking um, stem cell transplant and helping them to find a local center near them or help to encourage them through the process. Um, last month, I was involved with a girl that was having the stem cell transplant in Germany. And we were able to keep in touch through her hospital stay. Um, and I was able to encourage her because I was, you know, I understood some of the concerns and the fears uh, that she was going through at the time. And so the community now is global. Um, and uh, those of us that have had transplants are so encouraged by the fact that doctors are more open to um, this treatment option. And I'm just so excited to hear Dr. Connie even talk more about this and, and this upcoming uh, trial and all that I believe that it has the potential to do for patients with this severe disease. And how do um, your, your fellow healthcare professionals enlist people that they think may be suitable to take part in Freedom 3? Yeah, absolutely. We are hoping that this podcast will serve as a you know, as an impetus for, to reach this very important information to healthcare professionals, not just in US, but around the around the globe. You know, the trial inclusion exclusion criteria are available on clinicaltrials.gov. You know, you can put freedom three and, and scleroderma as the keywords and it will take it to you. Now, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with both of you today. And as I said earlier, this sounds like an incredibly exciting trial that could positively impact patients' lives worldwide. Um, Jean, just on that point, what positive impact do you feel this research could have on patients such as yourselves' lives? Since I have the opportunity to talk with a lot of newly diagnosed patients, what they're looking for is hope. And this trial um, and stem cell transplantation as a whole offers hope, a hope um, to stop the progression of their disease and to resume back to a life that they once had. And it's the only hope that I know of. So I am so excited about this. Jean, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your patient insights. Um, yeah, it's, been, it's been, been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, you as well. And secondly, Dr. Karna, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. It's, it's greatly appreciated you sharing your knowledge with us. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. 
I think it's an important, important podcast, and I hope that this will help get the message around what Gene highlighted. You know, we hope for early screening and diagnosis. We don't want people to suffer for a year or two years before they come to us. We want the rheumatologist and treating physicians to understand that there are trials going on that are hoping to cure the disease. And I think hope is, is a very important word out here. And I think this is how we will make strides, big strides in, in finding the effective treatments and cure for this potential devastating disease. Uh, the healthcare professionals can also go to clinicaltrials.gov and put freedom three and scleroderma as a keywords, and it will take you to more detailed inclusion exclusion criteria for the trial. Dr. Kana, Jean, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And that concludes today's discussion. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes just like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now.